Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Joining me here, MLB.com national editor, Matt Myers. Matt, it's been a momentous, I guess, two weeks since we've last done the show. You and I have gone to three of the four corners of this country doing cool StatCast baseball stuff. Indeed. I am uh, I am fired up, ready to go in the parlance of our uh, pet last president. Um <laughs> No, seriously, there, there's so much has happened, a ton has happened, both in terms of StatCast and just baseball stuff going on, baseball happenings in general, that uh, I was very, when I woke up this morning, I was like, I'm very excited to record the podcast. Today. That's Wow, I mean, that's high praise. So yeah, since we last talked, I think we uh, were saying that in the days to come, I would be going to Boston to present at Sloan and to introduce some cool new StatCast stuff, uh, which I did, and then I went to Phoenix to present at Sabre, and then you actually ended up in Miami at the World Baseball Classic and found yourself on TV with John Smoltz uh, talking about StatCast and catch probability. So it's been a whirlwind for us the last couple weeks. So that is the big news, is that we did go present catch probability. And that's our big new thing. Hit probability as well. Uh, we've got a lot of other interesting things coming up. But tell me, just tell everybody a little bit about what it was like to explain something new like this to John Smoltz, who I've been on the air with. Uh, and I find him to be fascinating. He was really sharp. But, uh, you know, he... He, he does not, like, take these new things lightly. He needs to be convinced, right? Uh, yeah, no, he definitely um, asked a lot of really good questions about, you know, how um, catch probability, for example, uh, factors in, um, you know, weather and the batted ball traits. Um, well, first of all, why don't we, you know, a lot of our listeners probably are familiar with catch probability to some degree, so maybe we, we should give, but we still should give, I think, one more kind of overview of what it is and why it's cool. So catch probability is uh, it's a metric we've defined, and it's for the outfield right now. And it's it actually, it's a very simple question. It's how likely was a particular ball to fall or to not fall, and based on how far did the fielder have to go and how much time did he have to get there. And we're defining that not as batted ball time, but as opportunity time, which is the clock starting when the pitcher releases the ball. And the reason we did it like that is uh, because we've seen guys like Kevin Kiermeyer say that they can read the catcher's sign. They actually move before the pitch has is, is been hit. And I think that's interesting. And I've had other fielders kind of tell me the same things, like the shortstop will flash signs behind their back. So that seemed like a skill. So it's basically based on those two things right now, and we'll improve this as the year goes on. We'll account for direction, and we'll account for proximity to the wall. But for right now, based on distance and time, what was the probability of the ball being caught? So if you catch a ball that was a 95% catch probability, well, big deal. You caught an easy fly ball. If you catch a ball that was a 5% catch probability, you did something special. So it's not just about the number of balls caught. It's about the difficulty of balls caught. caught. And that this is really the first big step towards kind of redefining outfield defense, which is what everybody's wanted since the first day of StackCast. Yeah, and also to, other, to be clear, distance needed is basically the 
optimal route you could have possibly taken to where the ball would land. It's not the distance you covered. Right. It's the like the the perfect point A to point B straight line that you needed to cover to make the catch. And we did that because we didn't want to give guys who took poor routes extra credit. If you went 20 feet out of your way, you shouldn't be giving credit for going further to catch the ball. You should actually be dinged for that a little bit. Um, so, yeah, so that was – so when I was in uh, Miami for the World Baseball Classic, um, I was on the air during the first game, Canada versus the uh, Dominican Republic, talking a little bit about catch probability, which if you've been watching, you've probably seen some uh, – implementation of it on the on the network broadcasts um you know i gotta say uh if i could have gone back in time and tried to explain to my 12 year old self <laughs> the scenario i was in uh trying to explain this cut explain this cutting edge cutting edge metric uh on live tv to a pitcher i grew up watching dominating my favorite team no less it would have been kind of surreal uh but uh it was it was uh very well received and you know we were able to um have a couple of really interesting Test cases in the World Baseball Class. We'll get to those in a second, but I want you to take, tell us a little bit more about what you presented at Sloan and at the Sabre Analytics Conference. But, but just real quick, I have to let people in on kind of the window tour world. I knew ahead of time you were going to be on TV because, you know, you told me about it. Uh, but when I we were actually at a, a house in Arizona with, like, just the cream of the crop of baseball nerds. So myself was there. You know, Tom Tango was there. Darren Willman was there. Max Marquis, Voris McCracken, just, like, the, the names that if you were a baseball nerd, you'd be very excited about. And we were all barbecuing. And I'm in the backyard, and I hear Greg Kane, one of my colleagues, go, Matt, Mike, Darren, get in here. Myers is on TV. And we all rushed in to, to see you. Explain catch probability. It was a very exciting moment for all of us 3,000 miles away. So, <laughs> you remember where you were. <laughs> I, I will always remember where I was. That was very cool. But, yes, as you said, so we went to uh, Sloan in Boston, and the Sloan Analytics Conference, it's a, it's, you know, a basketball-heavy conference, but it's about all sports. It was uh, started, to, for those who don't know, it was started by Daryl Morey, GM uh, of the Houston Rockets, who went to Sloan Business School at MIT, so it's affiliated with, uh, with MIT. Right, and from a StatCast point of view, we've got a, a spe- very special uh, place with Sloan because that is where three years ago our CEO, Bob Bowman, introduced this technology uh, you know, in the first place. It didn't even have the name StatCast yet. It was just our kind of next-generation player tracking technology, uh, and if you're a listener of the show, you know where it's progressed since then. So it was very exciting for myself and for Greg Kane, who is one of our lead engineers on this project, to kind of go up and give a little bit of background on you know what we've done over the last couple of seasons, uh, what we're introducing, catch probability and hit probability, which we'll talk more about in a minute, and just some of the things we're really excited about showing going forward. And I will say, you know, selfishly, there are a lot of people with a lot of presentations, but I was the only one who got to show animated gifts of Billy Hamilton making insane catches. And uh, while I'm half joking, I actually think that really helped visually <laughs> with the presentation. People really picked up on that. And then the next week, we went to Sabre Analytics in Phoenix, where Darren Woman and Tom Tango and I, uh, along with Mike Farron, who you know, a good friend of ours, gave a, a version of the exact same thing, but to a much more baseball-specific audience. Um, and we, you know, we did the same kind of presentation, except we let Tom go a lot deeper in some really interesting things he's talking about. He showed the shift chart, like the 15 different places a third baseman could play while a lefty's in the shift. Like some of this stuff will just blow your mind. And I think actually now that I think about it, we posted the audio of that as this podcast last week. So you may have already heard some of this uh, and I hope you enjoyed it. But yeah, it was really fascinating. And so now it's been two weeks or so since we kind of introduced catch probability, the leaderboards are up on baseballsavant.com. And, you know, I think we've gotten some pretty good feedback. Like some of our friends at Fangraphs have written about it. I've seen some team blogs writing about it, you know, the Rays and the Mariners and so on. Uh, and it's really exciting. So we kind of, you know, we knew it was going to come, but we never really got a chance to play with it live until we put it out there and the World Baseball Classic started. So I, I don't know about you, but just kind of watching these games live with this catch probability in mind, I've gotten some really interesting takeaways from this. For sure. Um, you know, the one thing, one other thing I wanted to mention about catch probability is that, you know, you mentioned that it's on the sort of the, 
the zero to 100 scale, but there's also, we've also defined it into different bands. Um, so basically, if a catch is from, you know, 0% to 25%, you know, really unlikely catches, we call that a five-star play. Um, then 26 to 50, that's a four-star play. Then 51 to 75, that's a three-star play. 76 to 90, uh, two-star play. Uh, 91 to 95 is a one-star play. And then sort of like there's, you know, a zero-star play, which is basically the ultimate can of corn. Yes, thank uh, you for correctly saying my typo here on our sheet. Um, so just to give you a little sense, when we refer to something or when you see something referred to as a one, two, three-star, three four, or five-star play, that's what we're referring to. And I got to say, you know, immediately when I, we first, you know, we have it impl implemented, stack, uh, catch probability implemented all the big league parks, so the games in Miami and the World Baseball Classic was our first chance to see it in action. And immediately, you know, my was like, okay, I want to start, I want to see some four and five star right. plays. <laughs> um, they don't see, I mean, granted, we've only seen about eight games so far, which is basically, as you point out, like almost like half a night in the big leagues, you know, so maybe we're, you know, it's, it's really it's still a minuscule sample size, but the quick, you know, first gut reaction is four and five star plays, even opportunities don't happen as much as you think. Yeah, we, we talked about this a lot, like how to set these bands. And I remember our first version, I think the five-star plays weren't up to 25%. Initially, we had them at like 10%. And then we ran the leaderboards, and we realized like, like the best player in baseball was going to have like five of these across the entire season. Uh, and that did not seem like enough. It would be like once a week. But I think you're right, and it's important to remember, you know, we've had about eight WBC games, like half of a regular night in baseball. And the average, I think we'll see, is somewhere between one to three a night. Uh, a full slate of games, so we, we're not even halfway, to, we're barely halfway to that. So that's not surprising to me that we haven't seen that. But also the four-star plays, the, the opportunities just haven't necessarily been there, and I don't know if that's just because the small samples over eight games, or maybe the some of the teams aren't really bringing majorly quality outfielders. I mean, there's a lot of things that could just be random chance. Yeah, the, I think the, thus far the best catch in the WBC that we've seen, granted this is only the games in Miami and San Diego, was like a, a blooper, like a blooper down the right field line that hung up for a while that Giancarlo Stanton ran down that had like a 58% catch probability. That's the best that I've seen. I think it's the best that we've seen in the tournament thus far. Yeah. Um, but well, the most interesting plays have been sort of the... We've had some really interesting plays. All right, so here's here's the first one that stood out to me. And this was um, from the uh, Columbia-USA game, which I, I think you were at that in Miami, right? Uh, I was not at the game, but I saw the, oh, I know right. the play you're talking so, about. Tito Poyo, who is a Yankee uh, minor leaguer, he made uh, what looked like a fantastic catch. Adam Jones hit a shot to basically the warning track in dead center. Uh, Tito Poyo turns one way, he turns the other way, turns back the other way, falls down, but he does make the catch, so it's an out. Uh, we gave that a 98% catch probability. Now, let's be clear, as I mentioned before, we're not accounting for direction yet, so going straight back, we're probably making that you know a little bit higher than it should be. He probably deserves a little more credit for that, uh, and that number would likely come down a little bit when direction is included. But here's the thing. Uh, Matt kind of explained before the difference between distance needed and distance traveled. Tito Poyo was 41 feet away from that ball based on his starting point to the projected landing point of the ball. He traveled 63 feet. <laughs> so while he made the catch, and it sure looked cool, I mean, that's a great example of a guy making life way harder than it needed to be. You know, and I think that's where we're going we're gonna to have some pushback, I think, on the data and the eye test not necessarily aligning. Oh, yeah, although I'll, I'll be honest, on that one, I was almost surprised that people seemed a little more confused by that one because it was pretty obvious he took a brutal oh, route yeah. to the ball. <laughs> I mean, it was... It was like an S. <laughs> <laughs> so that one, it was like, you know, 
Granted, he still made the catch. So the fact of the matter is the... <laughs> I, I think it's two things. I think one is that 98% is almost 100%, which seems like it should be a gimme for every single player, which, as we said, with direction included, probably not true. And then also, you know, he's a minor leaguer. We were comparing him to the major league average, so I get that that's a little, like, putting him in a bad spot. But, you know, that is, that's going to happen sometimes. The point of this is not really just to back up the eye test. Sometimes it's going to line perfectly. Like, all these Billy Hamilton plays we've been rolling out, those are great. They look great. The data's great. Um, but that's not always true. And then I, I feel like we always need to remind people the other side of that works as well. We can show you Adam Eaton plays where he made a nice running catch, but it didn't look like anything special. And the data says, no, that was special. He was so great. He got there and didn't even have to dive for it. So that's cool too. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the Stanton play I mentioned before, which was not in the Eaton class of play, you know, it was a three-star catch, um, but it didn't look like anything special. It was like, oh, nice running catch. But, you know, comparing it to this, the next play I wanted to bring up was from that game I was at. Uh, Canada, Dominican Republic, Dalton Pompey. It was similar. It was off the bat of Carlos Santana. He needed to cover 74 feet. He went 76 feet, so it was a very efficient That's route. That's pretty good, yeah. And it was over his head, and he made, you know, a, a half diving. It wasn't like full extension, it but it was like a running slash diving. He ended up on the ground, diving catch, and it was in. Um, 86% catch probability. I think you had some pushback on that from John Spelsa, but I, I remember watching this. So I was at this house in Arizona watching this play because you'd just been on. And I remember thinking to myself, that's probably going to get a higher catch probability than it, people think because it didn't look to me like the route looked fine, as you said, the catch was fine, but it just didn't look to me like the top speed was there, you know? And that's kind of what the numbers ended up saying, right? Yeah, he he's, his sprint speed, as we're calling it now, um, was 26.5 feet per second. Now, Tom Tango, who developed this metric, sort of has given a you know, rule of thumb for each band and basically says a two-star catch is about 27 feet per... Generally speaking, on a two-star catch, you, you need a sprint speed of 27 feet per second. In this case, that was a two-star catch. It matches up perfectly. What's interesting is that Pompey stole a base later in the game and had a sprint speed of 28.1 feet per second. So he clearly wasn't going as fast as we saw he could go on that day. So I learned something. I didn't know that about the stolen base later on. So that's cool. But I guess like when you talk about the eye test, it sort of depends on how you're watching it. Because I watched it, and I said, he doesn't look like he's running that fast to me. But I can also imagine a lot of people, you know, in the park watching it and seeing him stretch out to make this great catch, and you think, that's a fantastic play. Again, it was one of those that was over his head, so maybe we're sort of, um, you know, giving him, shortchanging yeah. him a little we're bit. we're not that far away from direction. You know, I, I, if not by opening day, I think pretty soon after that we're going to be able to incorporate that. Yeah, and that's, that said, I think he probably, you know, I'm guessing because he was going back, he wasn't able to reach his optimal speed as quickly as he might have otherwise. And also it's possible because it's harder to judge the ball going in your head. Maybe he misjudged how far he needed to go. So he didn't end up getting that extra gear and sort of at the end had to sort of lunch to make the catch. But again, I want to make two points. He ended up making the catch. Um, and two, I think that one thing we're going to learn, at least this is my, my hypothesis after eight games, is I think that we're going to, if we, two-star catches are added value. Even if it's an 85% play, that's still a play that's not made 15% of the time. Well, that, so that's kind of a great segue into our next point. Is I want to talk about where is actually a good catch. Because my initial takeaways watching this have, have been... <laughs> my initial takeaways topping this... Oh, well, that, yeah, see, that's actually a good point. Um, you know, we have been doing uh, reads for some of our other sister podcasts over the last couple of weeks, which I completely forgot about because we didn't do it last week. Um, but you should totally listen to the MOB Pipeline podcast. We've had some of these guys on this show before. Uh, both Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo have been on the show, and they are fantastic. They are just full of all kinds of prospect 
related data. Uh, they join Tim McMaster each week to talk about what's going on in the universe of LMB's future stars. Last week, they actually broke down their famous Cactus League prospect interviews from spring training, which is really cool because it's a chance to kind of get to know these guys uh, in person, you know, and what they value in baseball. Uh, so I've listened to this before. It's fantastic. So do search for MLB Pipeline in iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts and click subscribe. Subscribe. And uh, hopefully when they do that for us, it'll be way smoother than that just was. <laughs> but I, so it's kind of an interesting question, right? Here's a play that has come up a lot, I think, over the last couple of years. And there's a, there's a lot of different reasons. So last September, Braves at Mets, right? Yuenis Cespedes is batting. It's the ninth inning. Braves are up 4-3. There's two out and two on. It's like the most important part of the game. Cespedes crushes a ball to dead center field, 102 miles an hour off the bat, projected for 395 feet. Ender and Ciarte, who is fantastic. He's very high on all of our leaderboards. He reaches over the wall. He brings the ball back, right? Amazing play. Game-ending play. Mets are in the middle of, a, middle of a pennant race. It was an incredibly dramatic moment. It was like seemed like the, this could have crushed the Mets' playoff hopes. This was about to be a dramatic yeah. walk-off win, and it turns into a crushing loss. It is, it is everything you want from a great play. It looked great. Uh, an all-star was batting, and as Matt said, the, co- the baseball context was just you know through the roof. So we have that as a 69% catch probability, which admittedly seems kind of high to start with. And there's a couple reasons for that. One is, as we said, not accounting yet for wall or direction. So when those two things are included, that number probably comes down at least by a couple points. Um, but it's based on right now how far he had to go and how much time he had to get there. So he had to go 107 feet and he needed to go, or he actually ran uh, 27.6 feet per second. So that actually fits into this catch probability band. So that's a three-star play. And you kind of look at that play and you think to yourself, that feels like it should be a five-star play, but the numbers say otherwise. Are we just being kind of a little overwhelmed by the baseball context, or is, is a three-star play actually good enough? What do you think? Um, I think it's both, to be honest with you, because I think, as I said before, I think that what we're going to see is that two, two-star plays sometimes, and three-star plays in particular, are really big value-add kind of plays. But I also think that in this case, you know, you know, as, as we said, the wall does... The, the system doesn't yet know that the wall's there. So if the wall's not there, he makes that catch, like, pretty like it's like any other good catch in the gap. Um, that's why you have to th- just imagine that we're playing on a little league field and right. there's no fence. Well, think Detroit, right? Yeah. Deep center field. That ball gets caught in Detroit, sixty nine percent of the time, probably. Yeah. Right. I mean that that makes sense to me. So, so the, you know he's definitely getting shortchanged. That said, again, the distance he had to go relative to the time wasn't that like outrageous relative to other catches. That NCR makes. Granted, NCR led the majors last year in five-star catches, yes, so we are we are fully matter. aware that he is a great uh, defensive outfielder, and that is a three-star catch. I think we have to come to realize is a I don't know if great catch is the right word all the time, but it is a it's as I said it's a it's a, it's a value add. I'll, I'll give give another example from that Dominican Republic uh, Columbia game, and this was actually the segment that I was when I was on the air because I remember it well. It was a ball to left field over uh, Jose Bautista's head, seventy-nine percent catch probability. He did not make the play. And that's the, you know, when you see a play like that, you see a guy who's not known as a great, great outfielder not make a play. It makes you, you know, an extra base hit, runs scores. It makes you realize, oh, like the other side of it isn't just the plays that are made. It's seeing the plays that are a good right. outfielder would have made. Well, well, set aside for the NCR to play. Set aside the baseball, you know, pennant race. It's ninth inning. Put that all aside for a second. Do you think that two-thirds of major league outfielders, given that opportunity, make that play? It's really having that opportunity is the hard part. That doesn't happen very often. Do you think two-thirds of major league outfielders can put their glove over the wall and make that play? Is that unreasonable? I don't know that it is. Um, it's a really good question. I'd say I think that, you know, 
most center fielders could make that play. Well, so that's a good point. Right now we're doing the average of all outfielders. We're not doing it by position. We certainly could. Uh, but to start with, we're just trying to keep it simple based on the outfielders. So you're right. Maybe if that was compared to center fielders, that's a different number as compared to right fielders. Yeah. So that's something that's an interesting thing to account for. Speaking of fantastic center fielders, uh, Kevin Kiermeyer is in the news because Kevin Kiermeyer is reportedly signing a six-year, $53.5 million extension. And uh, if you have followed baseball at all, you know Kevin Kiermeyer is just a fantastic center fielder. He holds the single-season record for the highest defensive run saved mark ever, and ever goes back to 2002. And I think what we're finding that's pretty interesting is that catch probability aligns pretty decently with, with kind of the advanced stats like DRS and UZR. I think some people are uncomfortable with, with that, but I've always kind of looked at it as if we put out a metric that says, no, Kevin Kiermeyer is bad and Matt Kemp is great, then we are doing something <laughs> extremely wrong. I mean, it, it probably should align somewhat, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and not to give, you know, not to give StatCast too much credit, but it almost felt like the Rays were like, oh, shoot, like all these great metrics are coming out. They're going to show that Kiermaier is even better than, we, than people realize. We better lock him up now. Yeah, and so we have got like a million different great numbers on Kevin Kiermaier. Overall catch probability from last year, this is regardless of difficulty, just the number of, of balls that were catchable, he got to 94% of balls he could catch, and that's, that was the best in baseball. Um, and so right there, that tells you a lot about Kevin Kiermaier. This is my, my favorite stat I think I've ever found. So last year he got hurt. You know, he broke his hand. He's out for a couple weeks, obviously had some other days off. So he started 102 games last year. Um, when he was starting, Tampa Bay allowed 3.8 runs per game. When he was not starting, Tampa Bay allowed 5.5 <laughs> runs per game. Now, let's be fair. I have not controlled for quality of pitcher, quality of opponent, anything like that. This is just raw what happened. That is amazing to me. <laughs> that's a huge difference. I mean, that's. I mean, if you're looking for a way to like, say he's an MVP, I mean, that's that's value right there. Um, we also you know, we dug a little deeper, so we talked about five star plays, uh, and I like to combine those. I think with four star plays because that gets you all the way from zero percent catch probability up to fifty percent. So basically, balls that fall in for a hit more often than they don't. Who did the best at turning those likely hits into outs? Number one, Kevin Kiermeyer. He did that on 65% of his opportunities. And you look up and down this list, this list more than passes the smell test. Billy Hamilton, Gerard Dyson, uh, Keon Broxton, Adam Eaton, Jankowski's on this list. Uh, Matt's boy, Jake Marisnik is on this, this list. Juan Ligares. I mean, these are the best of the best. Surprisingly to me, Desmond Jennings makes the list. And I actually asked a Rays scout about this recently. And he said, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. Like, I know we cut him for a lot of different reasons, but, you know, when he was out there and healthy, the defense still looked pretty good. So... That kind of makes me feel pretty good about something that sticks out to me on a data perspective, um, standing up from a real-world perspective. And I said that Kevin Kiermaier caught 65% of those four- and five-star balls. The MLB average, 19%. Kevin Kiermaier is amazing, and that's, he's getting paid for this. Yeah, I mean, it's, and, it's, and it's because of all the different things that he can do, and obviously the fact that you know, he didn't, the Rays didn't have to compete with him in the free agent market. It's, you know, it's a six years, $53.5 It's a kind of deal where it's like, it's... Pretty win-win for a guy who was a 31st-round pick in the race. Like, they're never going to regret, with the, the dollars at hand, having Kiermaier on their roster. Even if, like, his batting craters, which it, it's actually improved to the point where he's a pretty... I, I think there's more breakout potential yeah. after there. Um, this is, you know, this is definitely a, the definition of a, a win-win deal. As part on of both it. sides. And you're right. You know, Kiermaier got, I don't even know what it was, but a, a very low bonus as a 31st-round pick. So now he's set for life. Uh, the Rays probably, if he plays up to expectations, the Rays will save some money because, you know, he won't make what he would have uh, in free agency for three years. So, you know, I, listen, we can sit here all day and probably talk about Kevin Kiermaier, but here's what I thought was cool. Um, as we said, we put out Catch Probability, and we got a lot of articles that were written about it. One of them I thought was very cool was at Fangraphs by our friend Jeff Sullivan. And uh, he basically did something interesting. I thought he took the expected catch probability in each of those bands, and he just did a very simple plus-minus, like who caught more or less in each of those bands. 
uh, and combine them, number one, Kevin Kiermaier, number two, Billy Hamilton. I mean, that makes perfect sense. Uh, and Kevin Kiermaier being the number one outfielder in baseball, that sort of aligns with what I'm seeing. I, I, I kind of look at it in two different ways. Billy Hamilton is the number one highlight outfielder in baseball. He makes the most unbelievable catches. He's better at this than Kevin Kiermaier is. But just in terms of getting two balls, Kevin Kiermaier is probably unparalleled in baseball. He's number one as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, no, and I think that this is, you know, the these new, you know, obviously defensive metrics that sort of hit a little bit of a wall. So it's just so cool to be able to sort of a new way to contextualize them and sort of, you know, be on the ground floor and be able to, to sort of see them in action. Yeah, you sort of want to thread the needle between, okay, we've got interesting data to tell a cool new story, but also not totally invalidate everything that's come before. <laughs> and I'm hopeful we're doing that. The guys you think are great are still great. And then I think you're going to see some interesting outliers. Like, you know, Odubel Herrera, I think he didn't necessarily look that great by the advanced stats. I think we have him looking pretty decent here. Yeah. So I, and I, I'm writing something else right now. You know which team actually looks a lot better by our metrics than they did by DRS? Last year's Texas Rangers. I was very surprised by that, you know, because, like, Carlos Beltran isn't that great. They actually look a lot better. So I think that'll be interesting to see where the two systems disagree and figure out why. Well, the the, um, the Herrera thing is interesting because I remember when the Phillies gave him an extension recently, um, and this was kind of before, really, we uh, finalized catch probability. Todd Zalecki, our Phillies reporter, asked us, like, hey, Klintek at the, at the you know, on the, the press conference or the conference call after the – after the signing, you know, mentioned how their metrics really valued Cabrera's defense. And some of, like, the, the modern, the advanced metrics that previously met publicly available were, like, pretty lukewarm on him. But to see him here, and we know that the Phillies right now are kind of, you know, a cutting-edge team in terms of what they're doing with, with, uh, with this kind of data, now I'm starting to see where, where Klintek, was, Klintek was coming from. So when I, when I look at Jeff Sullivan's list here of the, uh, the guys who had the most plays above average over the last two seasons, look at Kiermaier, sure. Billy Hamilton, sure. Lorenzo Cain, absolutely. Jake Marisnik. This, I know you've been dying to talk about Jake Marisnik. I think we had him as a, like a crazy good arm strength guy entering last year. He plays for the Astros, has never hit even a little bit. But Jake Marisnik here, uh, fantastic outfield. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, that's, to me, Jake Marisnik, I'm fascinated. I think that he's actually... He basically is the the poor man's Kiermaier because he, like Kiermaier, he has the amazing outfield range and also a cannon for an arm. That's to me that's actually what separates Kiermaier from Hamilton and some of these other guys as the best outfield in baseball is not just that he has the range, but he can throw literally throw 100 miles per hour. Yeah, there was um, one of, I think like seven or so outfielders who hit 100 last year, and Kiermaier was definitely one of them. And Marisnik is right up there with him in terms of arm strength. So you look at Jake Marisnik and you wonder why. How does a guy with a career 268 OBP have a spot in a major league roster. And you look at what team it is, maybe the most, you know, analytically minded team out there, or certainly in the, the top tier of the Houston Astros. Um, and you begin to understand why, because you have to imagine that they see the value in his defense as well. And now I think this is actually a really good segue to the next team we want to talk about, because when I brought this up with Tom Tango asking about Marisnik, the player he mentioned was Robbie Grossman, who had previously been, who basically Marisnik essentially replaced on the Astros roster. And Robbie Roseman is a really good OBP guy who's a decent offensive player, but all looks pretty poor in advanced metrics. Yeah, I mean, the exciting thing about this is you can slice and dice this data anyway you want and come up with interesting stories. So uh, the team that Matt is alluding to that I'm really interested in right now is the Minnesota Twins. And I think we've talked about Byron Buxton a lot on this show, and this is going to be yet another way to write a love note to Byron Buxton. 
but we looked at last year just what team made the most five-star plays, right? Which team had just the highest percentage of the best of the best plays? So tied for first, okay, number one, the Reds, un unsurprising because Billy Hamilton, and number two, the Minnesota Twins. So they both had 18, right? Just above the Royals and the Braves and the White Sox, you know, Kane, Inciarte, and Eaton, so that all makes sense. But here's what's really interesting to me. Making the most five-star plays doesn't necessarily make you a great outfield. So the Twins tied with the Reds for the most five-star plays. The Twins were also fifth lowest in overall catch probability last year. And these teams make sense. Arizona, obviously, Pollock got hurt. Peralta got hurt. They traded in Ciarte. They were playing backup infielders in the outfield. That makes sense. St. Louis, uh, a lot was written about their defensive struggles. Uh, Houston-Pittsburgh, I guess a little bit surprising, but maybe not Pittsburgh because we've talked about McCutcheon on the show. And then the Twins. They did a very poor job of getting the balls overall. This has really been the twin story for years. I'm guessing Robbie Grossman has something to do with that. So Byron Buxton is awesome, but Byron Buxton only played like 50% of the innings because he's hurting in the minors. Uh, Max Kepler is looking like he's going to be pretty good. He also played about 60% of the innings because he didn't come up till June. So, yeah, Robbie Grossman was, if I think, in the bottom five of all of our tracked outfielders. I think it was like him and Tyler Goodell and uh, Domingo Santana uh, really did just a below-average job of getting to the ball. Uh, and I, I, the Twins know that. I saw Rhett Bollinger, our Twins.com beat reporter, writing about how he, hard he's working to improve that defense this year. Uh, you know, they had other guys playing out there, like Oswaldo Arcia. You know, just, anyway, guys who aren't going to really be playing a ton of... Uh, oh, Miguel Sano played half mm. the season in right field. Guys who are not going to be playing a lot of outfield for the Twins in 2017. So I think that's that's kind of an interesting story. You see, you know, the young guys come up and make these incredible plays. It wasn't quite enough to overcome kind of the rest of it, the inconsistency of the other guys. I'm really excited to see the Twins. And right before we came on the show, I was watching a Twins-Cardinals spring training game uh, that my parents happened to be at because they live a charmed retirement life. And in one inning, I saw two great... Uh, outfield plays, and it wasn't even Buxton. I don't even know who was playing center. But one other thing to consider, and is that we're talking about raw numbers here. And I, and again, I haven't run these numbers, but I have to imagine the teams that made the most five-star plays also didn't have great pitching staffs. So it might also be a factor of maybe some more opportunities to make well, five-star so plays. That's a great, very, very good point for two different reasons. Right? A lot of barrels, a lot of hard hit balls. Well, outfield. I mean, the, so. It doesn't matter how good of an outfielder you are, you cannot make a five-star play if the opportunity isn't presented for you to make that play. So you're absolutely right. You know, the Twins, the Reds, the, the Royals, the, the Braves, these are not strikeout staffs. These are guys that are giving up a lot of... So you're, you're right. So in, I'm guessing that the Cubs probably uh, rank relatively low on this list, even though they had great outfield defense, but for two reasons, right? Number of batted balls, yes, but that's also positioning because we're using the starting point of the outfielders and our extremely, extremely preliminary look at positioning says the Cubs probably did a really good job at positioning. So if you're Jason Hayward and you're not getting it, you know, your, your pitching staff is very good and you're not getting a lot of ripped liners and you're already starting closer, we have to figure out a way to not unfairly penalize him just because those balls don't exist. And that's, that's always been an issue. It's always going to be an issue, but it's definitely something, you know, I think we're thinking a lot about. So we talked a lot about catch probability. I don't want to undersell hit probability because we introduced that as well. Hit probability is it's pretty cool. It's the same idea, but it's from the batter's point of view. It's basically at the point of contact, the batter has put an exit velocity on the ball. The batter has put a launch angle on the ball. And based on those two inputs, you can tell an enormous about, about where that ball is likely to go and how likely it is to fall for a hit. And right now we don't account for horizontal spray angle, but we will incorporate for that later. Um, because if you think about it, you know, I think a great example we use is from last year's wild card game, right? Brandon Belt just destroys a ball off of Noah Syndergaard, crushes it like 106 miles an hour or whatever to dead center. You know, what he, as soon as that ball leaves his bat, he has no more impact on it, right? Whether the ball falls for a hit, whether the ball is caught, that's really not on him any longer. So it just so happened that 
Curtis Granderson made an unbelievable play in center field and robbed him. So Brandon Bell gets an 0 for 1. That ball ends for a hit. I forget what the number was, like 85% of the time? It was more than that. More than that, right. <laughs> so Brandon Bell did his job. He showed amazing skill to really barrel up a Noah Syndergaard pitch. It was not easy to do. We want to give him credit for that skill, even though somebody else did an amazing job, too, to rob him of a hit. So that's hit probability, and you can see how it's easy to apply that not only for the hitter, uh, but also for the pitcher. If the pitcher induces a weak fly ball that has a 5% hit probability and the left fielder happens to lose it in the sun, are we really going to kill the pitcher for that? For 100 years, yes. <laughs> but for now, no, we don't have to do that. We can apply credit for the skill that he showed, and I think that's really cool. And one other aspect of it that you know has been a, um, a bit of a discussion point is whether or not to involve batted ball direction. Um, and the decision made you know, in, in, in creating this metric by, by, by Mr. Tango, um, which is, is basically like, he uses David Ortiz as an example, like someone who's shifted all the time. If he hits a ground ball to shortstop, that's 99% out for anyone else, but a hit for him, you know, it's a weak ground ball. How do you score that? And I think that the, the point, the fact of the matter is what we're trying to do is just rate the quality of contact and direction. Hitters aren't really trying, like, they're trying to hit the ball hard. But I do think we'll have a version of this that does have that included. Yeah. And so I think eventually, but I'm saying right now, that that's, yeah. that's, the, when you, that's the rationale. I'm just trying to explain sure, that's sure, the rationale sure. for it. Yes. Um, so that's so you can see how that's going to be interesting, and you that's just individual plays. You can bubble that up and accumulate it for an entire season. So I think we've talked before about how Kyle Hendricks actually looked fantastic, even without the Cubs defense behind him, just based on quality of contact and strikeouts. So uh, getting back to the WBC, Team USA had a really uh, interesting game the other night, right? Two home runs in, I think, the eighth inning. And um, our Andrew Simon wrote uh, an interesting piece on Eric Hosmer, who kind of hit two very similar batted balls. Almost, almost identical. In the uh, fourth inning, he hit 103 miles per hour, 34-degree launch angle, to deep right center at Petco Park. Um, caught, you know, a foot in front of the wall by Ender Inciarte. Of course it was. <laughs> uh, but it was, routine. it was a high fly ball, and it just it died on the warning track. Um, in the eighth inning, 102 miles per hour, slightly lower exit velocity, but 25-degree launch angle, line drive, that one goes over the wall, 404 feet. A little more to right field, but 404 feet would have been out basically anywhere in the park. The first one was 387 feet. So it kind of shows you how a little bit of launch angle can make a huge difference. In this case, it was 9 degrees difference and 17 feet, which, you know, and that, when you're talking about the difference between 387 and 404, that's a big difference. That's the difference between a flyout and a home run. Yeah, we talked a little bit about Hosmer on the show a couple weeks ago when the story came out that he was potentially looking for like some insane 10-year, $200 million contract, which he's never, ever going to get. But I think the point was made at the time that he actually hits the wall hard enough but on the ground too much. And we've talked endlessly about you've got you to elevate, right? And we're going to have some interesting stuff coming about that in a couple of weeks. But I think you've got something cool now about how that he's really he has not been doing that. Yeah, no, last year among the first basemen, the 23 first basemen that put at least 250 balls in play, he had the lowest average launch angle, and not just by, by a lot. He was last at 6.5 degrees, and the next lowest was Will Myers at 8.8 degrees. Now, for context, the aforementioned Brandon Bilt, 20.2 degrees. The extremely underrated Brandon Bilt, because he would have a lot more home runs if they didn't all die in that uh, triples alley out there. But, you know, as we talked about Hasmark Abuisco, I said that, you know, I'm sort of of the belief that he's the kind of guy that if he kind of underwent one of these swing overhauls or at least, you know, approach overhauls and tried to basically just only hit fly balls, he has the power and the, you know, the bat speed and the swing. Like he had, he's in the top 10 in batted balls over 100 miles per hour last year. So he hits the ball hard. And then last night he saw two almost identical, like these are the balls he should be trying to hit, which is like these deep fly balls to, 
to right center field. Yeah, and that's that's such a big topic, like elevating. And, and as I said, we're working on something cool. I just have to share one quote we got from one of our writers because we've been asking our beat writers to, add, to identify specific guys and ask them about getting the ball off the ground. And one guy, and I'm going to save the surprise for later, said, if I go 0 for 4, but I hit all four balls in the air, I had a good night. I thought that was awesome. I love that so much. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna end the show here on something that I, I just I swear was Matt's idea. I, I didn't suggest bringing this up, but we're gonna talk about Seth Lugo again. And here's why: Seth Lugo is actually starting for Puerto Rico in the World Baseball Classic on Friday night against against America. Marcus Marcus Storm in the United States, which is actually a pretty fascinating matchup. So you know, I, listen, you've listened to the show, you know that there's a ton of really interesting Seth Lugo spin rate data. He's the king of curveball spin. Uh, but the, you know, there's really kind of two points I wanted to share here. One is that you know, we talk a lot about his high spin rate on the curveball, uh, and that's that's cool and all, but people always say, so what? You know, was he a great pitcher last year? And I always say, well, you know, he had a 267 ERA, so in terms of outcome, he certainly helped the Mets do what he wanted to do. But, you know, what does it mean to have high spin on a curveball? So uh, Seth Lugo has an average of like 3,300-something on his uh, RPM on his curveball. So when you look at the bands, I, I kind of split this into three. If you have spin rate of 3,000 or higher, uh, you know, whiff per swing, so 38% uh, misses every time you swing at a ball, right? Uh, and guys hit 174. You put that up between 2,400 and 3,000, well, that whiff per swing drops from 38 to 32%. Batting average goes up by 30 points. You drop the RPMs from 1,800 to 24, batting average goes up by 30 more points. Whiff per swing drops to 12%. So it's not a one-size-fits-all thing. Obviously, it's part of your repertoire. Great spin doesn't make you great, just like great velocity doesn't make you great. But those are pretty startling numbers to me. So I look at that and I see... This is a guy who should use his curveball. <laughs> you know, the thing about Lugo, and I think that he's the perfect example of a guy who seemed an otherwise ordinary pitcher, but because of StatCast became, like, an instantly fascinating pitcher. And, you know, we only had, like, eight, you know, ten starts from him last year. So I'm very curious, you know, whether he's, you know, a swingman for the Mets, bullpen, whatever his role ends up being. I'm just very curious to see how this manifests himself. Now that the league is aware of sort of what his shtick is and what he does and, you know, how he's able to sort of maybe – harness his curveball more, knowing that, hey, it may actually be elite in a way that I didn't realize. Yeah, and just just to show that we are not always going to unreasonably pump up like the Mets' seventh best starter because he's got great curveball skin, let's go back to hit probability for just a second. So what I'd mentioned is that you can do this on every individual batted ball, what quote-unquote should have happened. You accumulate that over the course of a season, and if you include, you know, for strikeouts and walks, you can kind of see who really was it was just the most effective, right? So Clayton Kershaw, unsurprisingly, by far the best pitcher in baseball because he gets very weak contact when you're lucky enough to make contact. So you can rank guys like that, but what you can also do is look at their actual outcomes compared to their estimated outcomes. So, for example, Kyle Hendricks is actually very close. He, quote-unquote, earned all of it. It wasn't that the Cubs defense was pumping him up. What happened off the bat is basically what happened in real life. 501 pitchers last year faced at least 100 batters. And when I looked at the biggest difference between actual OPS and estimated OPS, who was number one on my list? Seth Lugo. Now, I laughed that he was number one on a totally non-related to curveball spin list. Uh, This doesn't make him look great, though. His actual uh, OPS against was 666. His estimated was 840. And if you think about it, he didn't actually like pile up great peripherals. I think he struck out like six per nine. No, he also he stranded like yeah. 95%. Unsustainable, <laughs> like batting average on balls in play. So, you know, I'm not saying that this is, uh, we still have to learn more about how predictive this is going to be, but that's 501 pitchers and he's number one on that list. Again, you know, we've seen pitchers now rely on their curveball more, which used to be, oh, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to pitch backwards. You want to pitch up your fastball. You know, maybe he is the kind of guy now that he realizes. You know what his curveball is, 
maybe he becomes that guy and can, can be a different pitcher than we saw last year. Because, you know, what we saw last year was a guy with a really interesting curveball who was probably not that good. I think he should take the lesson of Rich Hill and throw that curveball more. And I've seen him say he didn't actually think he had his best curveball last year, which I, once I, you know, blacked out and woke up like three hours later from seeing that, I was very excited. Uh, that's our show. Thanks to everybody. I had a couple people come up to me over the last couple weeks and say how much they enjoyed listening to the show, people inside the game and outside the game. So uh, thank you for that. Lots of really exciting stuff to come up this year. Make sure you watch the WBC and catch probability and hit probability are going to be really exciting for us. Uh, can't wait to talk about it more. I'm Mike. He's Matt. This is the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.